In the eighth year of the second month, Darius, the word of the Lord, came unto Zechariah, saying that the Lord is sore displeased with your fathers. Zechariah is a minor prophet. By minor, we have no reference to the value of the book, rather the length of the book. We know that all Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Therefore, our our perspective as we approach the Scripture this night must be that one that we receive God's Word as they were originally intended. That is the inspired text. There is a great struggle in the religious world, even in the churches of Christ, as to that perspective this evening. Not everyone who gets behind a pulpit has the same understanding of the Scripture itself. How we approach the Scripture is of vital and utmost importance so that we might, with a sound hermeneutic, retrieve what the inspired author had in mind for us today. Peter said... Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And therefore, when we look at Zechariah, this minor prophet, who was a contemporary with Haggai. Now, if you know your Bible history, you'll know that the Jewish people went in several times to captivity, but specifically that one that all people are aware of, that 70 years of captivity under Babylonians. And under this 70-year period, finally... Men like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel led a charge to come back home. And under Zerubbabel's charge, both Haggai and Zechariah would have been among those people. Haggai dealt primarily with the rebuilding of the temple precincts. Why? Because after the destruction and they're starting to rebuild, the people are slothful and lackadaisical. And Haggai, by the Holy Spirit, is instructed to tell the people to rebuild and rebuild with fervor. But it's Zechariah who basically has more of the spiritual import and he starts out in the first half of the book and deals with the spiritual absolute darkness that's upon Israel and however he ends with a great torch of truth and inspiration of hope in that the coming of Christ is soon. By soon, we do not mean 20 or 30 years. We simply mean in the scheme of time that Christ is going to come to relieve Israel and to deliver her from all of her problems spiritually. Now, we've got several things to cover, and I don't think that I can summarize this book in 40 minutes. But I do want to say this as I start. I appreciate getting a chance to be here. Now, I'm different than some preachers. I want to say that right off the bat. I still wear a suit and tie. I use a King James Bible, and I quote the passages. Not every passage, but I mean, that's what we're here to do. I'm not saying you have to wear a suit and tie or you have to use a King James Bible, but here's what I am saying. We've gone too far the other way in the churches of Christ. Way too far. Now, when I'm talking about preaching, I'm talking about a divine methodology that God has handed down through the pages of time and preserved for the way in which He converts people. If we want to convert the world to Christ... We do so through the public proclamation of the gospel and through the private dispensation of study, Acts 20. Paul said, I have taught both publicly and house to house. So when Zechariah chapter 1 verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, 
I'm saying he delivered by venue of the Holy Spirit exactly what God the Father had in mind. And when we approach the Bible, it must be that we believe in the inspiration of the text. And I hear so many things in the church today that cause problems to our young people. Someone said, well, my Bible don't say that. You ever heard that in class? Well, I mean, we've got more translations and Carter's got little liver pills. Somebody give us the unadulterated Word of God. There are several good translations. But just because it says Bible on it does not mean it's the Word of God. You've got the message and you've got the, the neuter gender quote Bible. These aren't Bibles. They're simply paraphrased documents of men that's distorted the text and is damaging the church. Give us the American Standard, the King James, New King James. Give us some literal Bible that has good translation in the quality of the text. The word of the Lord came unto me saying, Zechariah said, that the Lord is sore displeased with your fathers. And I wonder today in the churches of Christ, to be honest, if he's sore displeased with us in many of the things that we're doing and engaged in. Folks, if the church is going to grow today, it's going to grow the same way it did in Acts 2. And that's by the gospel being preached fervently. But here's what I want to tell you about Zechariah. It's a very unique book. It's one of the most overlooked and underpreached books in all the Bible. Isaiah is crowned by most scholars as the wonderful messianic tribute to Christ. Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, having the high note of the refrain. But actually, did you know Zechariah has more messianic prophecy per square inch and proportion to the size of the book than even that of Isaiah? That's interesting. So if you want to know about Christ, Zechariah is a must-study. I'll tell you something else it'll do for us. It'll help us if we don't over-literalize the book. When you read the book of Revelation in Zechariah chapter 1, you'll see a close connection to the text, almost identical. The same problem in Revelation also occurs in Zechariah. Sometimes people over-literalize the text and they come away with a false understanding and really the doctrine of premillennialism. We don't have time to expound upon that tonight. But Zechariah is one of the keynote passages that's lifted out of the text and bootlegged. Y'all know what bootlegging is? I was raised in the country. Bootlegging is the unauthorized transport of illegal beverages. Sometimes preachers do that. They illegally transport a passage out of its context. It's no text at all and make it a proof text for whatever they're trying to push. And premillennialists do that. That'll help us to understand the book, not to over-literalize it. When God writes, oftentimes in figurative, apocalyptic language, it must never be literalized. To do so is a detriment to the text and the application thereof. God is not coming back to this earth. Jesus the Christ is not ever coming back to this earth. And a lot of people, even in the church, fall for that junk. We sympathize with it. We need to be able to defend the gospel. The Bible says we will meet him in the air, First. Thessalonians chapter 4, number 16. Jesus is not coming back to earth. He's not going to reign from Jerusalem. He's not sitting upon the throne of David. And I can prove it by Zechariah tonight. In fact, Zechariah 6, 12 and 13 are two passages that ought to be in the mind of all of us because it tells us that a man is going to grow up and he's going to be referred to as the branch. And this branch is going to rule as both priest and king. Now this is interesting right here. Christ never reigned as priest while on earth. Do you know why? Because Hebrews chapter 7 in verse number 14, the Bible says he was of the tribe of Judah. Of which? Of which? Moses never spake. God never spake of the tribe. In other words, by the way, y'all want to know about, I walk, hope that doesn't bother anybody. 
You want to know one of the best proofs right here in the text that explains to our younger people why we do not use mechanical instruments of music in worship to God today because of silence. Hebrews 7 and 14, when God doesn't specify it, when God doesn't authorize it, you can't, even Christ while on earth was not the priest. Why? Because to be a priest, you had to be of the line of Levi. But he was of the line of... Therefore, Hebrews 7 and 14 says Christ was not a priest because he was not of the right tribe while on earth. But he is our high priest today. He is our high priest today. Do you see that? But Zechariah 6 says that he's going to reign as both priest and king. Who? The branch. The branch is emphasizing the humanity of Christ as well as the passage represents his deity later. But Christ was human. He was born of a virgin. Wish I had time to get on that tonight. Another point that we're having trouble with. I hear people who are supposedly studied academic scholars among us that question the validity of the virgin birth as it is purposely prophesied from the messianic place of Isaiah 7 and 14. Folks, if Christ didn't come in the flesh, God with us, Matthew 1, 21, is a fabrication. The Holy Spirit interpreted the messianic refrain when the Holy Spirit by Matthew told us that this is what it means. I don't have to read about what a thousand theologians say about the text if the Holy Spirit by Matthew told me what it means. Do you believe the Bible or not? The virgin birth. Why is this important? Because behold, the man, the branch, his humanity. God with us. He was clothed in both deity and humanity at the same time. And 1 Timothy 2 says there is one man between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus. Emphasizes his humanity on the cross. On the cross. Some of his statements were before the Lord. What do you mean? They were spoken before the Lord. But some of those statements were spoken to emphasize his humanity. For example, I thirst. So in this prophecy in Zechariah 6, what I want you to see is the humanity of our Christ and the one who is coming is going to be priest and king. Never was, never was a ruler like that except for who? Melchizedek. And the Bible says that Christ was going to be after the order of Melchizedek, having neither father nor mother. Not that Christ... Excuse me, not that Melchizedek did not have an earthly father or mother, but that there was no ancestral heritage proven by the descendancy and the chronological records of his day. And therefore, with that statement in mind, our Lord is eternal in nature, having no beginning nor end. So Christ was like Melchizedek. You see this? Now we're just getting started. Zechariah is a rich, rich book. And this minor prophet's underpreached. But now I want to talk about this. We also see in Zechariah the 11th chapter, verse 12 and 13, that he's going to be betrayed. Now it's true that the entire, the entire Roman government in about A.D. 70 has an invasion into, uh, in Rome and of course overthrows Jerusalem. And I don't want to get too bogged down into how far that applies here, but I do want to say this. God did not merely, merely through His providence destroy the Israelites because of the... In other words, the Romans would have had no power over the Israelites had the Jewish people 
had not been in sin and rejected Jehovah in the flesh. The Jewish people rejected our Lord. They rejected Him by and large. He came into His own and His own received Him not. John chapter 1 and verse 11. And the Jewish people by and large rejected Him. Now when I say by and large, I'm referring to the ones in charge. I call them religious racketeers. They had their garments and their their fancy titles and they loved to be seen of men and Jesus was a threat to them and he posed a significant threat and so obviously they combined forces with the Romans and other groups and plotted his murder. But this betrayal would also be one from his own ranks, one of his inner twelve. Have you ever had someone betray you that was close? I mean close, family and friend. Someone you never thought would have betrayed you. Don't ever have too much confidence in an earthly person, even a preacher. Because friends and family members and any earthly person will at times betray or at least disappoint you. There is no friend like Christ. There is no one who ought to have our total heart and total mind than Christ himself. Because all relationships, even a spouse, at times will disappoint you. That's why you to cast all your care upon him, 1 Peter 5, 7, for he careth for you. Now here we have it in Zechariah 11, a great betrayal. And in this betrayal, we're going to have Judas. And if you had time, you could look at all of the beautiful, specific points of this prophecy. It's going to be a silver medal, a coinage. There's going to be 30 pieces. And if you went over to Exodus and we had time, you would see that's the price to buy back a slave. Y'all see this? The imagery, the parallel. Christ has redeemed us. He's bought us back. And even at that, sometimes we betray him. And Judas, if that doesn't teach us that once saved, always saved is wrong, I don't know what does. Do you think Jesus called a man to follow him that wasn't saved? The Bible says Judas fell from his transgression and was numbered with the transgressors. And his highest crime was not the betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. His highest crime was failing to come back to God in true, absolute repentance. And weeping does not indicate repentance. I've known people that come down month after month crying. Crying don't make you right. Y'all see this? Nothing wrong with crying. We ought to shed a few more tears in the church. We ought to have a little more emotion. But just because you're crying or you're emotional doesn't mean you're right. Repentance and God's grace when repentance comes as a child of God makes that right. Well, I would like to talk to you tonight about Zechariah chapter 12. The Bible says that he was pierced. The prophecies, one is going to be pierced and wounded. The latter half of Zechariah, where the concentration of the lesson is tonight, because that's the messianic import. That's the part I want you to see. That there are so many powerful and specific prophecies laid down of old that absolutely prove and point to, without any shadow of a doubt, that the one that came, that man of Nazareth, was and absolutely sent by God. I do believe today, sometimes we have a lack of faith. Yeah, a lack of faith. Why are so many of our young people leaving the church? Why are they tripping over their feet to get down to the life church? Well, it's cool, it's light, it's this, it's that. I don't, hey, I don't have any sympathy for that junk. Either you want to follow the Bible or you don't. We've got to get serious about this deal. And I don't believe soft soaping, it helps our young ones at all. I'm telling you this from experience. Let's deal with it. Let's deal with it tactfully. But like Johnny Ramsey, one of my great preaching buddies, he's gone now. He said, look, 
Tact is great, but contact is better. The last decade or two in the church, we have really tried to accommodate people so much so in the teaching and preaching. We never actually deal with the fundamentals that distinctively set us apart from the religious world. We must educate the people in the church. We must let our children know what God expects of us. And all the grace in the world which was given us in the person of Christ, Titus 2 and 11, for the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation to all men. But all men there is a reference to those to whom it is potentially available for, not to whom it has been intimately given. Y'all see this? Grace is not some blanket that's just going to smother everybody in the day of judgment. I've been to a lot of funerals. People out of duty, 10, 20, 30 years. And a preacher. So I don't take money for funerals. A lot of times for 50 bucks, they squeeze them in. And they'll say something like, well, they was baptized. Folks, if you, if you obeyed the gospel and you were out of duty, here's what the Bible says. It's better what? What's the Bible say? It's better never to have known the way of truth than to have known it and to turn your back on it. For this proverb is true. The sow of the wall in the mire and the dog returns to its vomit. So when I read Zechariah, what I want you to see is this. I'm not just studying this tonight from a historical vantage point. I believe every sermon ought to take people to Christ and be applicable to life today. And that's what we need in the church. We need a big old-fashioned revival and lead starting with our own physical families. Get them back to the house of the Lord. That's what's happening in Zechariah. Do you see it? They were sore displeased. Who? God. Why? Because the Israelites, verse 3 and 4, were not obeying the voice of God. Jesus, recorded by the Hebrew author, the Bible says, He is the author of salvation. To whom? I know you all know it. To all that obey Him. Now you got to have belief too though, brother. That's right. That's right. To all them that obey Him. I think what's happened is this. Now, this is my judgment. If I ever say something, my ju- this is my judgment. I think what happened is, when you turn on your radio, almost every sermon that's on from some religious group is basically the same sermon. Accept Jesus into your heart. And number two, you can't do anything for your salvation and God's gracious through Jesus. And if you believe, you're all right. That's the biggest lie that's ever been told. Satan is a pervocator. Go home and look that up. It means he's an habitual liar, John 8 and 44, the father of all lies. We've got to defend the truth and get the gospel out. Someone said, well, the Bible doesn't need defending. Paul said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. Contend earnestly for the faith, Jude 3. So when we're studying these Old Testament books, here it is, folks. Here's the meat. Now, now turn over to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. And here, I mean, it's getting good now. He has been prophesied to be pierced in the 12th chapter. And did that not happen in John chapter, excuse me, 19, verse 34? And a Roman soldier took a spear and did what? Pierced his side. Revelation says in chapter 1 that he'll be pierced. He was pierced. The Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty, who? Christ. He was pierced. His flesh was pierced open. But here's the good news. In all the problems of Israel, in all the heartache, and all the apathy, here is the, to me, here is the dawning of a beautiful day wherein Christ's light 
is going to come over the hills of Judea eventually and triumph through his death, burial, and resurrection all of the lies and all the debauchery and all of the darkness of Satan. Here it is. In that day, there's going to be a fountain opened. Not a cistern or not a well. Merely these are places wherein water is held, but it does not flow. There's no continual flowing in a cistern. But in that day, there's going to be a fountain open. What day? The Messianic era. Wherein Christ is going to come and he's going to be pierced, Zechariah 12. And from wicked men who bind his hands and pierce his side, God is going to triumphantly overcome the darkness of the world through his atoning sacrifice. I want you to see this. All of the altars of Judaism and all of the animal sacrifices and all of the heifers and the rams and the bullocks and the sheep that were offered continually could never make the comers thereunto perfect. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. You see this? And all of that blood on the altars that was shed stood in typology only. What does that mean? It was the best plan that God had because it pointed to the time in which His dear Son's blood would be shed. That Paschal Lamb or that Passover Lamb. And that's why Hebrews the 9th and 10th chapter, go home and read that tonight, tell us that all of that crimson flow Even those people who received temporary forgiveness. And I always say that. That's what it was. It was temporary. When the Old Testament says they were forgiven, that was temporary. Because Hebrews 10 is a divine commentary. The law was a shadow of things to come. Not the thing itself. Y'all with me? If I stand up here, my shadow is not me. My shadow is an image of me. The law was a shadow of things to come. And Hebrews 8 and 6 says, we have a better testimony, a better ministry, and a better mediator. Why? Because the shadow, representing the Mosaical law, representing all of in typology, those blood sacrifices that Hebrews, the 10th chapter says, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. Here we are in John chapter 1 and verse 29. John the baptizer. Now, y'all know he wasn't a Baptist. He just baptized a lot of folk. How do I know? John 3, 23. John the Baptist preached near Anion near Salem where there was much water. He baptized so many people and only preached where there was big bodies. I shouldn't say big bodies. That's inaccurate. Where there was much water. And he did that so much that he received the nickname of there's the man that goes around baptizing people. There's John the Immerser or John the Baptizer. And when John preached, here was his theme and his message, not only of repentance, but here's another one. John 1 and 29. Behold the Lamb of God that cometh to take away the sin of the world. The blood of bulls and goats could never do what? Could never take away the sin. It temporarily granted an appeasement of the wrath of God. Held back by suspense of His divine plan, His judgment. Until under His mercy, the time would be the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4. The fulfillment of prophecy, Zechariah 13.1. In that day shall the fountain be opened. Y'all see this? And when that fountain was opened, praise God, now we're talking about true grace. Y'all see this? This is grace. Grace isn't us sipping on the bottle and going down to the casino and saying, well, nobody else is perfect anyway, so that's grace. That's not grace. You're confused theologically. The devil's whispering to somebody. Grace 
It's God's riches at Christ's expense. It is His unmerited favor prophesied in Zechariah. In that day to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, there shall be a fountain opened. Now here's the key. This fountain that's opened, no doubt, was through the piercing by the wicked men of Christ's side. And blood and water therefore came out. Now if we were to take a trip all the way back, all the way back to the tabernacle, got to understand the Bible because the Bible is the single longest thread of continuity woven in the loom of time. And if you don't have a basic understanding of how it flows, it's difficult to understand really the specifics. Now the tabernacle, the priest had to go in and do what? Remember that blood? The altar? Were the offerings? And then wash where? In the laver. Some said laver, laver, laver. Okay, either way, we'll split the difference. But the point of it is, you had to wash. What two elements came out of Jesus' side? Blood and water. For the priest to go in and to serve in the holy place, table of showbread, and all the other things that he did. He first had to offer here the blood and wash water and then go in and serve. Now the Bible says we are what? A royal priesthood. Now connected back with Zechariah in the last day, the Messianic era. How do you know? Because the Bible says in that day, because the Bible teaches us that when Christ's blood was shed, not only did this fountain flow forward, but it flowed backwards. And Hebrews said that it covered the transgressions of them under the first covenant. Now wait a minute. If they're already completely forgiven, why did his blood go back and cleanse them? Like a credit card debt. They had paid temporary payment and the creditor was temporarily off their back. But the principle was still there. So therefore, under typology and under the great priest system that God had developed, it foreshadowed in perfection the coming of Christ. And when he died upon the cross, his side was pierced and the fountain was opened. That blood, according to Hebrews, flowed back to the Old Testament patriarchs and cleansed those whom whom were faithful. And that fountain is still flowing today. And if a man wants to become a Christian tonight, he has to obey the gospel. No prayer in the sinner's prayer. Obey the gospel. Someone said, well, I was baptized. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Better make sure you're taught right before you're baptized. Some people are trying to sneak in the church. I'm serious. You can't sneak in the church of Christ. You got to come in the same way. Everybody has to obey the gospel. What does that mean? That means if you have been baptized but wasn't taught correctly before your baptism... The baptism is not valid. You've got to believe and then be baptized. What do you got to believe? You've got to believe and understand that that fountain was opened. The blood is what removes your sin. Now look at Matthew 26, 28. Here's a beautiful connection. Jesus speaking, I will, in prophetic voice, I will pour out or shed my blood for many for the remission of sins. Remit means to cancel. Take an eraser and wipe it off the board. All the sins that we've committed in this body. He takes an eraser, in theory, and they are wiped away, canceled, or remitted, spiritually speaking. That's why the Bible says he will remember them no more. He'll cast them from the east to the west. How so? By the fountain being opened. Zechariah is important. Y'all see this? Very important. So when this fountain is opened... When is it officially open for business? Well, the piercing happened on the day 
of which our Lord died. When, when he died on the cross, the piercing took place. We have record in John 19 and 34. But then, see, when somebody dies, don't you have to probate the will? You don't just get the inheritance immediately. You've got to do some probating. Transition time. Fifty days from the resurrected Jesus is what? The day of Pentecost. And the full inheritance is now available to the first time beginning at the house of Israel or Judah or the Jewish people. And isn't that what Luke said? Beginning at Jerusalem shall what? Luke 24, the remission of sins be preached. And Peter stood up. Now I'm not talking about some professor of academics. I'm talking about the apostle Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm not interested in the academics of theology. Do you follow me? Get back to the basics. Did Peter, do you have to have a, I knew a guy, he, he wrote a whole book on Acts 2.38 trying to get out of baptism, about 300 pages thick. Do you think the Bible is meant to be read that way? You tell me. Did God make it so difficult that you had to know 10 different languages and spend all your life reading every book of every man to see what he said to do, how to be saved, to contact the fountain that he gave his only begotten son to die for? This is religion gone nuts. It's simple. It's not that difficult. Acts 2.38. Peter said, speaking of the Spirit, by the Spirit. That means God is speaking. Not Peter. Do you see this? God is speaking through a mere vessel. Peter could not have said anything else if he wanted to. He was miraculously guided. Preachers don't have that today. People say, well, the Spirit's leading me. Now, wait a minute. Time out. As long as you're preaching the Bible, I can agree with that because the Spirit speaks through the Word. But if you say something not in the Bible and you blame it on the Spirit, we're going to have to duke it out spiritually. Don't blame stuff on the Spirit. You follow me? Because, see, that's subjective. I said, well, the Lord laid it on my heart to give the preacher a raise. Well, sure he did. Probably my wife laid it on my heart. The Spirit convicts people through the Word. We know what the Spirit taught. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Now, every one of you at that day was speaking to a Jewish audience because the gospel is going to be preached first at Jerusalem. And it was designed to teach the fundamentals, repentance and baptism. What for? To receive the remission of sins. Jesus said, I will pour out or shed my blood for many for the remission of sins, Matthew 26, 28. That's the fulfillment of the prophecy from Zechariah 13, 1. Now it gets better than that. Once you come into the church of Christ, Acts 2, 47, the Lord adds you. Nobody else can do that. The Lord adds you. And the Lord adds you when you were baptized, Acts 2 and 41. Now once you're in Christ, you have access to this fountain. When you immediately obey the gospel, all your sins are forgiven. But guess what? you got another problem. From time to time, what are you going to do? Sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse number 8. If any man say he has no sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. In fact, he makes God out to be a liar. Christians should not live in sin because if we sin willfully, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10 and 26. But a Christian is to walk in the light. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Now remember, you know, you have to read your own mail. This is very important in preaching. If you're studying with somebody, okay, and, and you flip over and you're going to have people in your home and, and you start reading 1 John and they're never been, they've never obeyed the gospel, they've never been baptized, and you're reading and they start reading 1 John 1, 7. Now, wait a minute, time out. They're reading a promise 
that they can't access yet. Y'all with me? So when you're teaching people, make sure you explain to them. I call it reading your own mail. I'm not supp- if I get something in the mail, it's got your... You have a neighbor. I got one of those neighbors. The lady came over and said, you got five pieces of mail. Sorry, I opened all of them before I realized it was your name on it. All right, nosy Rosie. All five pieces? You know what I mean? Read your own mail. Why is this important? Because 1 John 1, 7 is a promise to the Christian. If you, everybody in this room tonight that's adults, little kids are safe, anybody in here who is a responsible, morally intelligent adult have the mental capacity to reason, who has obeyed the gospel, Romans chapter 10, obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, Romans 6, 17. That person is qualified by God and blessed in Christ to receive the promise of 1 John 1, 7. But now 1 John 1, 7 is a conditional promise. How do we know? Because the parallel text would be Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. What does Romans 8 and 1 say? There is therefore now no condemnation to all those who are in Christ Jesus. Read your own mail. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Even those in Christ, you better stay out of the flesh. That's why I'm telling y'all, stay out of those casinos. Stay out of those beer joints. Now let's go back to 1 John 1, 7, to the Christian. If we walk in the light... Who? That's a Christian. That's we're walking in the Spirit. We're walking in the light. Those two are synonymous. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, two things. Number one, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, there's this fountain, cleanseth, E-T-H, in the King James. You don't have to have that to know it, but it sure helps me because I'm country. I never was accused of being smart. But here's what that verse tells me. It means... There's a continual action flowing on the part that God's part, God's provision, supplies a continual effective cleansing of remedy to remove the sin. Who's it to? To those who are in Christ, who walk in the light as He is in the light. Y'all see this? So therefore the fountain allows us to live in a state wherein God sees us as complete, or some translations will say, perfect. Someone said, well, nobody's perfect. Read Matthew 5, 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know the word perfect's found about 40 times in the Bible? And you are to be perfect, complete, saints, sanctified, holy, priest. There's the terminology. We've lowered that. Do you see what I'm saying? But when you come into Christ and you walk in the light, this fountain is cleansing you. When you confess your faults, 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 9. See, the the promise is in verse 7. But just in case somebody gets the big head, he humbles us in verse 8. If you say you don't have any sin, you deceive yourself. Then in verse 9, he gives the remedy when you do fall into sin. If we do what? Confess our faults. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And the two terms in Zechariah 13, one of those terms is indicative of a legal pardon, of which is also found in 1 John. In other words, you are legally pardoned by Emmanuel's bane once 
and after you are obeyed the gospel through and by the crimson flow that never, ever ceases. Folks, the gospel is good news. Good news. But if we water it down and if we don't preach it in its entirety or simplicity, we are doing ourselves and all of our physical families an injustice. The only thing that's going to save us is this fountain, the blood of Christ. And therefore, our preaching... By the way, how much time do I have? Five more minutes. Sometimes at Deer Creek, I go over. But I won't do that tonight. It's okay, go ahead. No, no. <laughs> when I was preaching at Lindsay, her, uh, Rebecca's grandpa was one of my elders. And uh, he had to remind me sometimes. He says, now, Brant, he says, uh, don't forget, we got to beat the Baptist down to lunch. <laughs> of course, that was a joke. But there was just a little bit of seriousness in that. But anyways, what I want you to see as we close tonight in the last five minutes is this beautiful fountain. Now, Zechariah, all of this messianic prophecy is pointing to Christ's coming. Do you realize the love that Christ had on the cross for us? I don't believe the nails held him there. I believe, I believe his love held him there. And tonight, the Bible says that Christ loved us sacrificially, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. His love redeemed us from the law. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. His love gives us an entire ability to be reconciled with the Father who is in heaven. And this evening, and I know maybe it's not traditional here to have an invitation at this time, but when I preach, there's always an invitation. Because I believe the Holy Spirit, through that book, unless you got one of them dollar message books, but I mean, if you got a real one, the Holy Spirit yields His influence through the teaching of the Bible. Do you remember when Lydia, in Acts the 16th chapter, when Paul preached to her and the Bible says the Lord opened her heart? I wonder how He opened her heart. Can't argue with the fact it's stated. But is there any evidence in the text to lead us to the conclusion of how He opened her heart? The same way He opens hearts tonight. The Spirit, or the Lord, through the teaching of the text, illuminates the mind of people maybe not having had prior knowledge concerning a particular subject. And all of a sudden now they're learning and it's, their mind is open through the text. The Lord opened Lydia's heart through the message of Paul. How do you know? Because her heart was opened through and by that venue according to the book of Acts. So if there's anybody here tonight that's not a Christian, someone says, well, I was baptized, but I want you to hit the brakes for just a second. Hit them hard. Baptism by itself, does not save you. You've got to contact the fountain. Now, baptism is the transaction period of where you contact the fountain. But you have to have a knowledge of what's going on before you're baptized. We've got a lot of people who say, well, you know, I was baptized at five, six years old. Can I, can I start coming here? I've been baptized. You let too many in like that, you're going to have a problem. That's anywhere. we got, we got some at Deer, Deer Creek trying to sneak in. One guy got so mad at me, he left. But two obeyed the gospel two weeks ago. Two of them obeyed the gospel. No one's ever going to convince me a five-year-old can obey the gospel. No way. They're little children. If a five-year-old has sinned to obey the gospel, what does that in reverse imply? That a five-year-old could die and go to hell. Y'all see that? Do you believe that? The Bible speaks of men and women obeying the gospel, Acts 8 and 12. 
All I want to know tonight is, is there anybody here of true accountability that's never really thought about it in such simple terms, the beautiful prophecies of Zechariah depicting the fountain of Christ being opened. That fountain is open tonight, and if anyone would hear the saving message of the gospel, believe in the name and in the deity and in the, the place of Christ as the living Son of God, and if he would be willing to repent and change and turn his life around, there's the difficult part about becoming a Christian, repentance, not baptism. Repentance is the giving up, the turning over to God, the removal of things in my life. Sometimes you've got to cut out friends, ungodly influences, places. The nip and tuck alcohol, got to go. All that's got to go. Someone says, I don't drink too much, that's too much. However much you drink is too much. Why? Because it causes brethren to stumble, Romans chapter 14. And I'll know this, I've never met an alcoholic that didn't drink. Start by a little. If a man doesn't drink, he's not going to become an alcoholic. Christians should abstain from the appearance of evil. That's old time preaching, but I believe that with all my heart. We don't need to get anywhere near it. And when we're teaching people, it's not just throw them in this water for a number. It's listen, you've got to repent. And if they don't give something up, they're far more likely never to stay. Religion costs something. You go buy a house, does it cost you? You've got to put something down, closing costs, fees. If you don't have skin in the game, you're likely to walk away. God says you're going to have skin in this game. You're going to repent and give your life to me. And in that repentance and confession with the mouth, now you're a candidate to be baptized in water so that you can contact this fountain, the blood, and God, through Emmanuel's veins, is going to remove and remit every sin that you've ever committed and place you into the church, the saved, wherein you can walk, according to Paul, Romans 6, 4, in newness of life. And if there be anybody here this evening that would like to think about that, study further, talk to the great minister that you have, do whatever you could. Please think about it. As we close this lesson, if there's any in the church, you know where revival starts? Not on the outside, on the inside. If there be any here this evening that want prayer or to confess sin, now don't come down and say, if I sinned. The Lord don't take ifs. You know. <laughs> I was preaching one meeting one time, and a man came down and he said, well, I think I offended my wife. I said, what'd you do? He said, well, I... I've been looking at pornography. And I said, well, I don't, I don't think the word think is appropriate. That's whitewashing. God wants us to confess our faults. Not your neighbor's faults, my faults. And if either one of those invitations is yours this evening, as we close, there's no song, but as we close, if someone wants to come forward and speak to the minister or the elders, you're feel free to do so. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the invite. And may God bless you.